and I'm not there to help her. And I got a text from her a while ago saying Toby got out and she couldn't find him. Oh, no. I know. And she had to go to Longmont with the moving truck. Oh, so, that's terrible. I know. She left a window open for him. And he's gotten, I mean, the good news is that he's gotten out before and he hides mm -hmm. around the house and then they eventually find him. But I felt really bad that I wasn't down there to yeah. hang around and, and wait for him and try to sweetle him out. So I hope that yeah. it all ends well. But you mm -hmm. know me. I'm a mm -hmm. little paranoid about little kitty cat issues. So wish him well. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, we're, we're going to try this. I'm going to see if I can actually play the music for us so like we can hear it oh. Oh, in, the, nice. in the call. Let's see if it works. Mm -hmm. You getting that? Mm-hmm, I am. Yeah. I like your music choice, by the way. Mm -hmm. Hello, and welcome to Good-Looking People in Small Clever Rooms that Utilize Every Centimeter of Available Space with Mind-Boggling Efficiency. We're back for another dose of Infinite Jest. We planned to get to page 78 today, but we encountered a very long end note, so we've lowered our sights to page 68. I'm Andrew, and I'm here with Brianna. Hello. We're rereading the book, which we first read five years ago. As usual, we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hello. Hi. And by our friend, Vinny. Hello there. So we have like a lot to discuss in this section. No I have so much to say about that end note. Um, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. but there's also, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that happens here. And I think we should just kind of start like working our way through in, in chronological oh. order. Excuse me? Toby's there. To Doris oh, got good. back to Boulder and he's there. Oh. Good. That's now a I can concentrate. So do we want to talk about how uh, smoking in the uh, in the uh, tunnels under Enfield Tennis Academy? We kind of touched on that briefly last week. Well, uh, the big thing that I was starting to wonder with this section was um, David Foster Wallace's own relationship with marijuana and with drugs. Um, I wasn't able to do as in-depth research into it as I wanted to, but I did just um, take a quick look and find out that he did have um, issues with addiction and things like that. So that does... You know, in a way, I find that a little bit more helpful because um, a lot of this obsession with marijuana and everything um, that this book is having, I think, kind of contributes to my overall feeling of this taking place in like a 90s comedy dystopia. Um, and so much of uh, what we read um, definitely contributes to my belief that this takes place in a dystopia. Um, but the marijuana particularly, um, and in terms of how it's treated and how getting high is treated, um, seems very much rooted in this uh, 90s, even late 80s um, comedy understanding of it. Yeah, I mean, I think... I'm still I still don't totally buy the positioning of this in like a comedy in the way that pop culture defines comedy, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um I think that I can see it as a comedy of a different type like in a more classical literary sense of like characters kind of being alive at the end. Uh, 
Are, are you yeah. giving a spoiler? Is this <laughs> no, a spoiler no alert? spoilers. Okay. Um, but that is the that is the question that I would have. It's yeah. either um, comedies end with everybody alive at the end, and or a wedding. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um. So classically, classically, I would disagree with you. Well, I, I I don't mean comedy necessarily like that, but in the sense of like characters being unchanged. Like oh, if okay. the word comedy is used to describe this book, I don't think it necessarily means the the jokes kind of comedy necessarily. Yeah, not that there aren't funny things in the book. And but. Well, and to be clear, when I am talking about uh, comedy and this book, and particularly when I'm talking about the comedy dystopia we're in, I'm not necessarily looking at jokes or i'm looking at jokes from the point of view of being in the reality of the joke like Mm. um if you're inside of a joke if you are a character in a joke your reality is horrifying it is absolutely terrifying and painful and awful and yet you are existing in a joke world and Mm -hmm. that's kind of how i'm viewing this I find that really interesting because it immediately makes me think about being the man who walked into a bar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ouch. Yeah, I, yeah. I think uh, like that's I in my attempts at writing comedy. I think that's one of the rules that I try to keep in mind, not to derail the discussion to talking mm-hmm. about writing necessarily, but one of my rules for writing comedy is that it's not funny to the people that it's happening to. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, right. Whereas. Uh, oftentimes in in straight drama or in more tragic writing the circumstances like they can be funny to the characters but when we see them uh from farther away we see the the tragedy in them yeah um and uh, for all of you who have um a little bit more familiarity with um David Foster Wallace as a writer and everything do you know anything more about his uh, relationship with either marijuana or with drugs in general I don't I I remember reading something about him having a history with um opiates maybe or some kind of substance abuse Mm-hmm. Uh, we were we were talking a little bit about what like wondering what his relationship with alcohol was. Um, yeah. Again, I I don't know how much credence there is to this, but I have read that around the time that he was writing Infinite Jest in in the like mid nineties, he did have a pretty profound addiction to television, and I think like one of the ways in which I best understand Infinite Jest is as. Um, as a book about addiction, like many different kinds of addiction, um, I don't. I don't think to the exclusion of all else, but I think that that's one of the frameworks by which I can kind of piece together like why we're paying attention to certain characters at certain times. Well, in addition, that leads you to the the more physical engagement with the book mm-hmm. itself mm. and how jumping through the hoops of reading infinite jest and that entire process could be construed as addictive. Could I just yeah. have an aside here? Uh, yes. So your grandma who is going to be a hundred next month uh, mm-hmm. is very curious about this book. I think mm-hmm. she's talked to you a little bit about it and yeah. uh, I can't imagine reading it to her. Uh, mm-hmm. But I have, I give her little synopses of what I've read as far as I can do that, uh, yeah. which I'm 
only slightly capable of doing it. And <laughs> she said the other day that she believes that to write this stuff, he would have had to this that a lot of it is autobiographical. Like he would have had to do some of this stuff to be able to write in such detail. And we I, we had a big argument about that because I said I didn't think that was really true. But 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 she wanted me to say it to you okay. guys. Okay. Well, I, she I think she's. And she thinks that he was insane. Hmm. I said I it's don't entirely think so. possible. I mean, he certainly had mental health issues. I don't know That's what, what exactly they her. were, but he he took his own life in, yeah. in around two thousand seven. We had I a think. very large argument around it, and and we didn't convince each other of our stance on it. But that's her take. So I agree with you in theory that I don't think it's necessary for an author to have direct autobiographical experience with something to write about it in great detail. But I think in the case of David Foster Wallace, there is quite a bit of autobiographical content in in this book and in his writing in general. And we also know that David Foster Wallace um, was a was a real serious tennis player as a kid uh, and ah, and into hmm. into college, I believe. Oh. Um, so there is that piece. Yeah. I, I, I mean, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I don't <laughs> I have anything it. else to say. I oh, have, I was just oh. trying to fill air. Oh, oh, what I <laughs> wanted to say was, and perhaps it be, it's because I am a mother. Uh, but in this chapter, I really, uh, enjoyed the, the information that we got about Hal's relationship with his mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, mm-hmm. I, it especially hit home where she says he says something or somebody says that uh, it feels important that a concerned but unsmothering single parent know when to <laughs> let go somewhat and let the too high functioning of her three sons make their own possible mistakes and learn from their own valid experience. No matter how much the secret worry about mistakes tears her gizzard out. Mm-hmm. I really like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. it, and it goes on to say that she's not even so much worried about him like using drugs or drinking alcohol as she is. She's mostly has it says she has a black phobic dread of hiding or secrecy in all possible forms with respect to her sons. Yeah. Which is I thought was says something about their relationship. Avril is a really fascinating character. There's so many layers to her. I just wanted you to know that I don't know if I've ever writ- read a sentence that more accurately describes a parent's uh, <laughs> fretting about their children, especially their children who live far away, you mm, know, mm-hmm, and that kind mm-hmm. of uh, that gizzard tearing. Yeah. Of when things aren't, when you think things are tough for your kids and you're not there to, uh, you know, offer a. Uh, listening ear or a, you know anything it's it is gizzard tearing so <laughs> I did appreciate that comment yeah um, I actually highlighted well not highlighted but uh, marked the uh, two high functioning of the three sons uh, quote mm-hmm. as well but for a different reason uh, mostly because I'm curious who which is two? the yeah which yeah, two which two, which two? I have. I have initial suspicions, but I feel yeah. like they're the easy answer. Yeah. I yeah. did want to point out that I found it interesting that Avril rarely travels above ground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, right. that's she a callback to the thing about, how, yeah, how... how why, are, the, why all the tunnels under yeah. everything? Well, I wonder if it's a, if it's a climate thing. Yeah. 
I mean, I think narratively, um, it is a climate thing uh, that it would be, you know, since this is in Enfield, which is close to Boston, if not in Boston, um, I've been meaning to do research on the Enfield poltergeist because that's my main um, connection to Enfield. But um, what? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. There were, yeah. Uh, huge paranormal hotspot uh, was Enfield. And there I was no a poltergeist idea. there. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I'll I want do to know more. And I'll yeah. get a book. I'll uh, get a book report on it. Uh, please do, please do. Yeah. I'm okay. so please. excited. All right. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah so, so it's like, in Boston, so snowy, cold in winter time, and everything. So yeah. Um, in terms of metafiction, I feel like it's another instance of disconnect, um, mm-hmm. and of basically removing oneself from the environment. Right. And it kind of is this image of like scuttling around the tunnels because yeah. some mm-hmm. of them are like they talk about them being kind of low and kind of. Mm-hmm. You know that there that it's it's kind of this secret little warren of like adults can't even spaces, right? Yeah, yeah. And it is another kind of callback to the Erdetti chapter, um, uh, where we got Erdetti being so closely um, connected to the insect, right? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Crawling into his hole and out again. Mm Hmm. True. Yeah, you said the word scuttle, Norma, and I'm uh-huh. like, oh, bugs! Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> bugs. Uh, the other thing that happens at the very end of this chapter is we get one more little tiny insight into Mario. Yes. That he, that he films, oh, yeah. that he, the, the coach has him film uh, kids' tennis play so that, and, and it says something that sounds really profound at the end. Yeah. It says, the reason being, it's a lot easier to fix something if you can see it. Mm. I think that sounds weighty to me. I, that may have impacts throughout the book. <laughs> There's another line in here uh, that I think feels very much like David Foster Wallace's cultural commentary. It's just a few paragraphs before that. He says, uh, like most North Americans of his generation, Hal tends to know way less about why he feels certain oh, yeah. ways yes. about the objects and pursuits mm-hmm. he's devoted to than he does about the objects and pursuits themselves. Um, right. It's hard to say for sure whether this is even exceptionally bad, this tendency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That sounds that like too, something that could be pertinent to today. And it's just our lives, you know, you get, you have your routines, you go to work, you do, you go to school, you do this, you do that, and you just do them. It's kind of like, you know, we're often sort of on autopilot through our days. There's something about being retired that speaks to that. All of a sudden, all of your routines are, are pulled out from under you. And then you have to kind of, you have to kind of rethink uh, that whole if I if I have time now to do what I want to do and what I enjoy doing and think about the things I like to think about, what would those things be? Because <laughs> you just get used to doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And immerse yourself in the doing. We did I note the attaché still watching. Yes. The... Yes. Yeah. yeah. How long has that been? It's... I can't math. It's just a few hours, right? About five hours. And he hasn't eaten his supper. He hasn't. No, it's still yeah. sitting around his it's neck. It's congealed. Yeah. What is his wife going to say when she gets home? E- either she's going to be horrified or she's going to be like, 
again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you are so helpless. <laughs> Next chapter. Okay. And we go into a new year. We haven't been yeah. there, right? Dairy products from the American Heartland. I think that's my favorite year so far. That is a good sounding year. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But but the what happened during it's not so good. That was a very that upsetting. was a that was a horrible little story of yeah. yeah. You know, talk about running amok. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this that, is is this the this is the first time we meet Don Gately? Yeah, it is. Except yes. except except. So mm-hmm. your grandma, in fact, listened to our whole podcast from last week. Oh. oh. Oh, hello, Grandma. Hi, Grandma. Hi, Gladys. Yeah, say hi to her. So she is like uh, participating vicariously by listening Mm -hmm. in. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I listened to it with her and listened to our whole podcast. And it was after I had read this chapter. And, 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 and the thing about Hal digging (laughs) up his father's head, it was with Don Gately, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This Don Gately. <laughs> this Don Gately. It was like it was like a you know a cartoon lightning bolt or a light bulb in my head or something when I heard that in our conversation from last time because mm-hmm. I ha- I honestly hadn't remembered it until I heard so, us talking about it. So it's unclear. It seems unlikely that Hal and Don Gately would know each other in- at all. It just seems unlikely, given the circles that Don Gately moves in, that he and Hal would have any occasion to meet. I mean, yeah, Hal's a high schooler. Yeah. Don Gately's an accomplished criminal. Yeah. It's very confusing. Yeah, and and it is. Yeah, but yeah, definitely, I mean, Don Gately, I think, is older and definitely wouldn't have been in high school or anywhere near there, um, even during the, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's 27. In this year. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, it tells oh. us when they Don Gately. Oh, yeah. They're so yeah. 27 year old. I really, really appreciated um, the description of having a kind of ferocious jolliness in his attitude toward his livelihood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That just, I thought it was charming. Yeah. <laughs> Along with his mm-hmm. almost perfectly square head. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's massive right. and almost. Mm-hmm. There's another massive head. That's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. seems to be a running theme. Hmm. I also liked. I like the description of him as as really being a pretty nice guy. Really, mm-hmm. <laughs> who just needed to. He just needed yeah. to burgle people's houses so that he could get his drugs that he needed. But but he wasn't violent, and he you know. It, he wasn't, I really liked. He wasn't um, really. He wasn't. He. What did it say? He wasn't really focused on the. It wasn't the crime. It was just that he needed. Yeah. He needed. He needed stuff. Mm-hmm. I really liked that he says. Uh, uh, surprisingly, like ninety percent of people with wall safes conceal their master bedroom behind yeah. uh, some sort of land or seascape <laughs> painting. Um, yeah, and and he had a mm-hmm. way stickier conscience about the possession of some of these large particular facts than he did about making off with other people's personal merchandise. Right, um, that right. made me like him a lot. Yeah, we we have these like couple different uh, incidents that are described here, but ultimately right. the thing. So we have the separate story of him like making enemies with an ADA. 
That was fair. That was really gross. Mm-hmm. Yes, was, it was. That was very gross. Um, it would yes. be hard to forget mm-hmm. that. Yes. Uh, uh, but you have to yeah. admire his planning. <laughs> In um, When I was right? doing the reading for this section, I was like, oh, I like this year. This is a really cute year. Uh-huh. Oh, Don Gately. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, is this the year that the thing oh, happens? The and thing. Andrew just nodded gravely at me and I <laughs> shuddered. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, the Quebecois guy's... Uh, untimely end is is very upsetting. It is very upsetting. That, yeah. was, that was a very upsetting scene. Is anybody else um, getting the feeling that part of this future that we're in is that Quebec successfully separated from Canada? I think it's unclear. There seems to be, there's a lot of talk about separatists, but it's unclear right. whether or not they've actually yeah. seceded. And um, there's a lot of, there's a lot okay. of talk just in general about Canada. And the yeah, U.S. and, 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 Quebec and, in have, and deteriorated relationships. Mm-hmm. There's some other language that that gets dropped in this section pretty casually about stuff that's never that isn't fully explained yet. Um, uh, there's a mention mm. of the uh, the Great Concavity. Yes. Um, yes, the Great Concavity. Oh yeah. It says it's an intolerable blow to Canadian sovereignty, honor, and hygiene. Yes. <laughs> Something about the return <laughs> of the reconfigured Great Concavity to its yeah, U- northern neighbor. USA's, USA gives it back to Canada uh, somehow. USA's ex-perialistic gift. Yes. There was another funny thing about <laughs> Canada banning fluorescence and uh, computer and telephone oh, yeah. uh, solicitation ad cards that fall out of magazines. Uh any mention of religious holidays to sell something? I saw that and I thought, man, I want to live there. That sounds I know. so nice. I know. <laughs> it sounded good. No, I remember I, I thought about what I was going to say about the, the, guy, uh, the guy's unfortunate death mm-hmm. in this robbery, the mm-hmm. burglary gone wrong, is that it, it really struck me that it came down to uh, – inability to communicate because yeah. they were speaking different languages basically yeah. or i mean it was the head cold too mm-hmm. obviously but it was they just couldn't they weren't they weren't communicating because they because of the language difference basically mm-hmm. uh in diving into the footnotes or into the end notes there's um mention of don gately's old and once gifted friend from his beverly uh, massachusetts childhood Trent uh, Kowadis, I think that's how that's pronounced. Trent Kowadis, kite. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, so I looked into this phrase a little bit more. Uh, Kowadis is a Latin phrase that means where are you going or where are you marching? Um, hmm. And it has a biblical connotation. Hmm. According to the apocryphal Acts of Peter... Peter flees from crucifixion in Rome at the hands of the government, and along the road outside the city, he meets the risen Jesus. In the Latin translation, Peter asks Jesus, Coatis. He replies, I am going to Rome to be crucified again. Peter then gains the courage to continue his ministry and returns to the city where he is martyred by being crucified upside down. Those early Hmm. Christians were Hmm. really cheerful people. No Um, kidding. That makes me think of crucifixion in general and how it was reserved for criminals but it also calls to question who's asking the question of where are you going of trent kite Mm -hmm. is 
Is he, or is he the question? Yeah, unclear. Or questioner. And and how could he possibly have gotten that nickname? Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Uh, Also, we've already passed it, but we did have our first um, instance of having a footnote to an end note um, earlier. And we get so many more of them. Um, which I think just kind of in our ongoing discussion of footnotes and notes <laughs> and the overall just yes. fracturing of yes. this narrative, uh, I think it's important yeah. to bring um, up. I was thinking about this too in the, the idea of a fractured narrative as um, it, it kind of reminds me of um, the idea of a hypertext novel, which was a thing that had kind of begun to gain traction in literary circles around the time this book was written, um, or maybe even a little earlier, mm. uh, uh, authors like Judy Malloy were writing hypertext novels as early as 1986 and distributing them on early versions of the internet. Um, That's super cool. Yeah. yeah. And interestingly, a lot of those early authors were uh, influenced by two very different works of art. One was Choose Your Own Adventure books, um, and another uh-huh. was mm-hmm. a story uh, by Borges called The Garden of the Forking Paths, uh, uh, explores the idea mm. of sort of an interactive, um, explorable narrative. So it, this isn't like it, this isn't like a choose your own adventure type uh, forking of paths in the way that a lot of hypertext novels are. But it does seem like maybe an attempt to do something similar in print that you kind of have to make those decisions like when in your reading of the text are you going to check the end notes are you right. going to read every end note um the instant are you, it are appears you, yeah, are or... you going to chase down the footnotes to the end notes or or the short answer for me is yes 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 <laughs> just read it all yes. why why yes. would you read, read it? It. you paid yeah. for the book just mm-hmm. read the whole right. book read it read it <laughs> Uh, there is a, there's another little thing that I want to talk about at the very end of this chapter. Do, is there anything else that people want to say about this? Um, let's see. I've got a quick thing at the end of the chapter, too. So in the section about the interlace console? Yes. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I have like some um, some chasing down of technical terms that are being used there. I'll go first because my technical term is app. Now, yeah. I'm, when did, was this book written? 1995, 94, I think. It was actually, he started it years before that, but it was published in 96, February 96. Okay. Um, so this might be the first instance of app being used as application. Uh, I, uh, because, oh, yeah, do you have more on this? I, I don't have th- this specifically, but I believe that app originally dates to the uh, the first Macintosh computers, when they were released in 1984, there was some discussion of killer apps. Um, oh, okay. Uh, and that, that term okay. was used less and less with desktop computers and then kind of appropriated for the smartphone market. Yeah, because see, um, in the very limited research that I was able to do before recording today, um, I found out that the first time of using apps in our modern um, understanding of it was in 2008. I want to do some more research on this because I could I could have sworn that the phrase the killer app was associated with early Macintosh computers. But I'll I'll look okay. into that and I'll let you know. I wondered okay, when I good. read it, yeah. is it referencing the 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 guy who died? He had some kind of fancy uh 
console, right? That, I, th- uh, I think so. That, Gately, that Don Gately's buddy was really drooling over. Like he was looking for oh, safes and stuff, and yeah, and his like friend was films. looking for. Uh, his friend was looking at the cool setup mm-hmm. that he had, and I just yeah. wondered if this. I, if I this think is it might somehow be. the same I, one. It's a different year, but I or was it, that it could be it could be it like the made, marketing copy built? from when it was made. So yeah, I I wanted to to look at some of these terms and try and figure out which which of them were real and which were fictional. Hmm. Um. So so here's what I have for you: TP as opposed to TV. Right. Um, something kind of in between a TV set and a phone and a desktop computer used primarily for watching video programming, but also capable of various forms of communication. Uh, there's not much uh, discussion of interactivity or gaming, which was a very present mode of home entertainment, uh, even when this book was written. Um, right. True. Yeah. And, and even the internet, though much less ubiquitous, existed in the early 90s, and David Foster Wallace would undoubtedly have been familiar with it. Um, but they're not computers. Um, computers do exist in Infinite Jest, but they're very rare, and they're usually relegated to like classrooms and offices. Um, hmm. The TP console is a different thing, dedicated to entertainment and communication, more in line with like the 1950s visions of phones and TVs as home appliances. Hmm. So he mentions post Prime Star DSS dissemination. Um, Prime Star is a real thing. It's a satellite TV broadcast system that was launched in 1991 and was later surpassed by DirecTV and Dish Network in the mid-90s. Uh, DSS dissemination is also a real thing. It refers to the fully digital satellite transmission system used by DirecTV starting in 1994. Um, so this would seem to imply that the, the newness of the all-digital state-of-the-art DSS system is touted here as a selling point for being like the most cutting edge in broadcasting technology. He mentions pixel-free internet fax, uh, which I have no idea what the hell a pixel-free fax could be, uh, unless he envisions fax machines that use vector graphics rather than raster graphics, um, which I, I find hilarious, this idea of, like, ultra-futuristic fax machines. Mm-hmm. Um, although, I think probably in the 90s, they, they did seem like the epitome of accessible technology. They did. I remember. Um, so I remember fa- uh, first learning how to use a fax machine and being yeah. confused for a really long time that when I put my, that I would make a copy to fax and I would make a copy for myself, for mm-hmm. my files, mm-hmm. because I'd forget that the, <laughs> that the paper doesn't actually go anywhere. It's just there. <laughs> oh, technology. Um. <laughs> Let's Sorry. see what else I have here. Uh, try and quad modems, uh, I think, means that the this device would have multiple modems sending and receiving data in parallel to speed up the transmission. Um, and, and in that way, it would be able to transmit, like, high-definition video content over the lower bandwidth data connections available to people at the time. Um Dissemination grids, I don't really know what that means. It could be something to do with uh, peer-to-peer file sharing or, or something like that. Um, screens so high def, you might as well be there. Uh-huh. That's uh, fun, isn't it? Because yeah. here we are now Yeah. high def. 
Yeah, yeah. And he's, so, and so he's, and... he's probably talking about HDTV here, uh-huh. um, which in 1996 would have seemed to be just on the cusp of believable speculative fiction. Right. Um, HDTV as a term was first used in the 1930s. Um, huh. But it, it, oh. it usually referred to only like minor incremental improvements in image clarity. Um, the uh-huh. technologies that uh, transmitted what we would now consider to be HD were first developed in the late 1960s, but they were hamstrung by a long-fought analog versus digital battle, and so uh-huh. didn't reach consumers for decades. Um, right. And in fact, the first public HDTV broadcast in the United States didn't happen until the year Infinite Jest was published in 1996. Oh. Um, they were more or less a technological novelty, though, and didn't see widespread adoption until the transition to terrestrial digital broadcast in the early 2000s. And, uh, yeah, laser chromatography is the one that really threw me for a loop. I have no idea what that means in this context, um, nor how chromatography might involve lasers. I did some Googling about this, and apart from using lasers to measure various properties in gas chromatographs, I couldn't figure out what any of this meant well i would take it just to be like color printer but with lasers yeah that was that was kind of my guess that maybe it's talking about a different way to render colors that that wasn't a cathode ray tube um and then we have a list of symptoms that might go along with the overuse (laughs) of this device yeah yeah i enjoyed that list gluteal hyperadiposity yes (laughs) yes (laughs) So now we're back in YDAU, um, yep. and back uh, at Enfield. Enfield. Jim Trelch is sick in bed. More nightmares. Nightmares mm-hmm. come up again. He's having yeah, nightmares. lots of nightmares. And uh, um, we do. I can't remember which chapter we were talking about, but I do know that uh, we discussed last time about the difference between uh, the close third person that's usually, that's the books usually written in and going into first person. And we do get another first person uh, segment here. Yeah. And it's very, uh, it's very jarring too, because it happens right in the middle of this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a little, it took me a minute to like, to realize that we had switched. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did also want to call to attention that with our friend Trelch. Trelch, I think um, is how that's pronounced. mm -hmm. We're in present tense. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I wrote present tense in the... in the uh, margin, but I think it's it's like really, really recent past tense. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And um, I underlined paranoid king and wrote Macbeth question mark. <laughs> um, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, speaking of the paranoid king, um, I think that's where we go to the footnotes. Number 21. Is that it? Yeah. And it tells you to yeah. go to a different footnote. Yeah. yeah. Which was okay. annoying. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So yeah. <laughs> that's just saying go to footnote twenty two eleven then? Yeah. I okay. had to is look there that a footnote up. Two eleven? <laughs> yes. Yeah, there is. I had it, no idea what that meant. Yeah, it explains the provenance of this poster, which is a picture of a king uh and the caption, I know I'm paranoid, but am I paranoid enough? 
Um, oh, there was okay. a, a gift to Pemulus, I think, from Hal and friends. So I have a question. Yeah. So the first person part is is that Jim or is that Hal? Who is that? I was wondering about that. It's not clear th- to me who it is. I was reading it as Jim. I started I think- reading it as Jim, but then I thought it sounds like it sounds like Hal. It sounds like Hal. He mentions he mentions the moms, which well, is a. There are two first person sections in the in the chunk that we read, so um, the one that starts on page sixty seven is definitely Hal because it mentions the moms, but in this oh, okay. section that That's starts funny. on sixty one and talks about like being at Enfield for your oh, first right. night and the right. the face it, in the floor. Yeah. But it I feel like, like it could be any of the older boys illustrating for the fictional you mm. what it's like to be at Enfield for the first time. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, because mm. I, it doesn't really live in the first person for very long. It just starts with I and then it goes to narrating for somebody else yeah i noted i noted in that section it must be on six page 62 and now i can't really find it but i wrote myself a note that it's there are when they're talking about the nightmares and you're reading it there are so many apostrophes like the and it makes it really (laughs) odd awkward to read like the the desks tps and the uh the panels patterns and the bunks springs and the uh, I don't know. It just seems yeah. it, it was it was hard to read it. Yeah, a uh, similar thing, and also kind of going um, back to the end, but so, uh, which we I don't believe we had any end, but so's, but we did have, but didn't know, never did see. Mm. Where which, is that? Uh, oh. Okay, so that's on page sixty-two. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, but didn't, didn't know, know, never, never did. did. But didn't yes. know, never did. I thought it was a really yep. scary. I thought it was a really scary description of nightmares. Yeah, it's terrifying. That mm-hmm. that the nightmare being that you can't see what's always there looking at you, mm-hmm. even though it's there always looking at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It makes you. Uh, what does it say? Uh, not sure all night forever. Unsure you're not missing something that's right there. That that worry that you're missing something that's right. Some some you know fatal flaw that you're missing. I thought it was a sad story about little children being sent off to boarding school too. Yeah. I mean, how sad. Oh, sure. Yeah. How sad. Mm-hmm. And they they try to be so brave and. Uh, don't we all try to be brave? And you have to hide, sort of hide the flashlight that your mom gave you uh, mm-hmm. just for instances like this when you need a little light in the darkness. But you have to, you don't take it out unless everybody else is asleep because uh, probably they'd laugh at you for <laughs> being afraid of the dark. And uh, I don't know. So now uh, we're talking about. Oh, boy. James O. in Candenza's formative years, amongst other things. Oh my gosh, we learned so much. Yeah. In this, yes. That that 
here again, I was wishing for my big uh, wall-sized whiteboard to start <laughs> noting things from the end notes that I'm sure if I could just understand them would explain the time and space so much better than I can wrap my head around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You need a serial killer wall. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. That's what I need. Maybe I could turn my hallway into that. I'm sure yeah. uh, David Ooh, would Yeah. I start scrawling bizarre <laughs> messages and things on the wall in the hallway. Face in the floor? Yeah, indelible marker. TP? So I'm going to have a whole big spiel about uh, James and Candenza's filmography when we get to that end note, but we can uh -huh. talk about yeah. what happens before that. Um, well, it certainly yeah. gives insight into his relationship with his dad, which explains yes. a lot yeah. about mm -hmm. Hal and dad. And yeah, one is left uh, one to wonder about Oren and Mario and dad, but we know Hal and his dad have a difficult yeah. relationship. Yeah, and we, yeah, I think with the um, big end note in the filmography, we get a lot more clues into that as well. Um, but let's see one thing I didn't know what dipsomania was, so Me I either. looked it up. Okay. Yeah. So dipsomania an irresistibly, typically periodic craving for alcoholic drink. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That leads into that, that sad, another sad little story about, uh, uh, that his father talking about his father as being somebody that would go down to his raid sprayed basement workshop and build a promising junior athlete the way other fathers i.e restore vintage autos yeah yeah and yeah. somewhere it talks about the you know the boy crying and mm -hmm. and that really all seems to be about his father's like bitterness at his failed acting career right um, there's a so there's a little bit in here about um him being a promising young pre-method actor who yeah. who can't quite hack it in uh, in the I guess the film or theater so, world. So I'm instead not sure he which. so instead he goes to school and gets his doctorate in optical physics. <laughs> well, no, we're yeah. we're talking about oh. we're talking about oh his father James's James father, father is the yeah, actor. Okay, wait, all right. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I I wasn't too clear on that either, but wait. that does make I'm pretty sure, sense. right? And then um, under okay. the administration of the only child of a former U.S. top junior tennis player and then promising ah. young pre-method pre actor. Oh, okay. So and, and also the sentence I think structure there is confusing yeah, it, it and is makes confusing. you think that everybody's mm -hmm. a tennis player and an actor. <laughs> right. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, carry on. Uh, so I think it's um, it maybe of note that uh, James Incandenza's father. Do we know his name? Uh, it would be James Oren and Candenza. So they're both James Oren and Candenza. I think. Or, yeah. Or James. There's later, James and Candenza. Yes. Doctor is Doctor James and Candenza is grandfather to Hal. Mm -hmm. James Oren and Candenza is himself. Okay, I gotcha. Oh, okay. I gotcha. Um, so anyway, Doctor the, the the elder James and Candenza. Um, has this failed pre-method acting career and and is consumed with bitterness towards method acting. Um, mm -hmm. which, Why? Which because he go, it was he successful? He goes on increasing, increasingly spiteful tirades about 
Um, and, and I think that this places it at a, at a very particular point in history. Um, I suspect that this means that his career probably started to fail in the late 60s to early 70s, around the era of New Hollywood, when method acting was becoming the thing that movie stars did. Um, yeah. Because before then, I mean, method acting existed in American theater going back to like Lee Strasberg in the early 50s, but... Right. Well, I mean, even before that, I would say, because... In Russia, it dated back much further. Yeah, and even like, um, I mean, with um, Marlon Brando, young Marlon Brando, he was a young method actor, and that was, I mean, he started in the uh, late 40s. Late 40s, yeah. 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 so in that era, method acting existed, but you could be a successful actor without using method processes. Um, mm-hmm. But I think particularly like in the period in which new Hollywood films started being made, uh, it became almost a necessity that your leading man w- or your your leading cast were method actors. Well, because that was your leading man. Let's be honest. Yeah, your leading it man. would be your leading man. Right. If, Thank uh, you, Vinny. If an act, you're welcome. <laughs> If a female actor ever tried to do method, she would get fired. But male actors do <laughs> right. Yeah, there's there's a whole mu- a whole bunch of gendered genes. ego wrapped up in the the method process. Um, right. Woof. Uh, yes. Woof indeed. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I I think that that's when this this would have taken place. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. Because um, 1997. Um, kind of going a little bit into the end note mm-hmm. um, was the one year year that were given um, in uh, in Condenza's filmography. Yes, which seems to be like I think that we can infer that that's what subsidized years or subsidized time means, like when they start naming the years instead of numbering them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When years become something that you can. Um, sponsor. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. So, so there, there's a lot in there, and then uh, James O. Incandenza, the younger. Um. So he plays tennis for a while, and then got he tennis studies scholarships. He got yep. scholarships, yep. just like Hal was trying to get um, at the beginning. And, and and uses those as an opportunity to get as far away from, right, from his Arizona father. as uh-huh. possible, um, as far away as one can get without drowning. Yes, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and becomes an optical physicist. Right. Um, Which also seems real, this seems really important about perceptions and what you see and mm-hmm. and when it also, some of the problems that he has. It also introduces um, the term annular fusion or cold yeah. annular fusion, which yeah. is something that comes up a lot in the end notes. And as I recall, is, right. is a significant thing throughout the book. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I, I forgot to, to check this recently, but I remember looking this up mm. and annular basically means like concentric, I believe. Like it, it refers to like concentric rings, maybe. Hmm. Is it, I mean, fusion is like the... Like we, nuclear. Yeah, nuclear fusion, but it's not the 
do we, does anyone use nuclear fusion to produce ener uh, energy? Do, or is that something yes. that still is working to be developed? Because it's much safer, right? I, I think that there are some fusion reactors, like small fusion reactors used for research, but none of them are... Right. are functional right. for generating power and so he was amazed so he was like a world famous guy if he developed it which makes him presumably like fabulously rich and famous yeah mm -hmm. um and and he makes a lot of money off of patents uh and and then but then he do then he then he goes and makes films so does that mean it's time to talk about this filmography? Yeah, I guess so. Okay. So we have this end note here, this 10 page long end note that comprises a list of every film that James O in Candenza made. Yes. Um, it's, it's exhaustive. Um, mm -hmm. and, and a exhausting. little exhausting. Um, mm -hmm. in that, so, so one of the things I noted about it and I, so I have a lot to say about this in terms of um, I was thinking about what filmmakers David Foster Wallace might have been drawing inspiration from and, and thinking about kind of how James Owen Candenza would, would have been positioned as um, an experimental filmmaker in, uh -huh. the, in the time that he was working. Um, and one of the things that I noticed is that in, in a lot of – so there's a lot of experimental filmmakers who do contract work, like industrial documentaries about how to play tennis or whatever. Um, but those films generally wouldn't be included in a scholarly discussion of their creative work. Um, so and I think yet they appear in here. The, the, they appear yes. here. So apparently the authors of this filmography were attempting to be as thorough as humanly possible. I think, isn't that one of the things that they say at the beginning of the yeah. filmography? There's yeah. a note from the writers. Mm -hmm. uh, Incandenza's output itself comprises industrial, documentary, conceptual, advertorial, technical, parodic, dramatic, non-commercial, non-dramatic, non-commercial, blah, 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 um, works. This filmmaker's career presents substantive uh, archival challenges. Mm -hmm. um, also because it's including works that some of which were never finished or never released or were conceptually unfilmable, um, mm -hmm. which I'm very intrigued by. So there were, there were the, you know, noted finding that, that he, he was working his, basically his whole film career, his filmmaking career. He was trying to make the infinite jest film. Yes. Right. Which we yeah. have very little information about other than right. its we title really... and, and that he mm -hmm. tried to make it numerous times. Mm -hmm. and, and it, it was is his a last failed thing. attempt at commercialism. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also an interesting thread that runs through a lot of this is a lot of his movies uh, were silent. And mm -hmm. some of them even had sign interpretation for the deaf. Yes, some of them, a lot of them were room. closed captioned, but some of them were even sign interpreted. Yes, like, like one he made the Union of Nurses film, uh, silent closed caption interviews with hearing impaired RNs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. During made during the uh, healthcare reform riots of 1996. 
Yes. <laughs> and then there was one. Then there was one that happened during the MIT language riots of 1997. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um. That was the the Union of Theoretical Grammarians in Cambridge. Yeah. This is the one that features mm-hmm. a, yep. a debate between Steven Pinker and Avril Incandenza uh, regarding um, the the question of descriptivist versus prescriptivist grammar. Um, mm-hmm. So Steven Pinker wrote a book that came out around this time called uh, The Language Instinct, in which he criticizes the notion that language needs to be taught. Um, and that people's grammar is poor and getting worse with new ways of speaking. Uh, and I think we can presume then that Avril is um, the the prescriptivist in that argument and is much more conservative about how language should be um, discussed. Yeah, and that also kind of fits in with what we know about Avril. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, which is odd, though, because that's, that seems to me to be a very conservative, uh, like like even politically conservative philosophy. Um, Say more about that. that. That language is this thing that needs to be frozen in time and, and people who use it in new or revolutionary ways are like um, uh, morally corrupt in some way or uh, not, or not smart. smart and, or and, Yeah. Yeah. Um, ah, so... Kind of like the the Academy Francaise. Yes, yeah, very much like the Academy mm-hmm. Francaise. Um, yeah, it, it, but that's that's intriguing because it also mentions in this chapter that Avril uh, had some relationship with the far left Quebecois separatist movement. Right. Um, yeah, but and uh, real quick, Brianna, do you want to let listeners know what the Academy Francaise is? All I know about it is what I learned in high school French class, which is that the Académie Française is essentially the body that is responsible for keeping the French language pure and French enough. So basically, they would shudder if they heard any French child going into McDonald's and ordering in hamburger because that's not very french it's just a bastardization of an english word it's it's impure Mm. we must preserve our purity at all cost did i hit all the salient points or Vinny, will you fill in the blanks (laughs) that's basically what i know about it as well yeah (laughs) so Um, the french language police basically yes right yeah (laughs) i think it's interesting um looking especially at hal from a lens of being disabled that both um uh james owen condensa seems interested in hearing impaired but there's also a whole lot of films in his filmography that take a almost sadistically medical look at um, either disability or bodily difference. Yeah. Uh, which I find fascinating and I think is also really telling of how he interacts with his children. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of gives us a much the, better idea of kind of who he is. In there fact, is also, I'm not going to be able I'm, to find the the entry now, but there's uh, there's a film that's the story of 
a conversationalist talking to a child yes. who doesn't speak. Yes, there's a story. Oh. Yes, there's do you a remember story which one that read. is? It was a great marvel that he was in the father without knowing him. Hmm. Uh, and it is a father suffering from the delusion that his etymologically precocious son is pretending to be mute, poses as a professional conversationalist in order to draw the boy out. I was wondering if maybe the scene where this actually happens with Hal was maybe James O. working out the film concept in real life to see how it might work. I would believe that. Or if he truly was suffering from a delusion like that. I would say it's either him working out how the film works or that is the film itself, what we read. That he Mm. lured his child there and filmed him without his knowing. Although it's not, the actor is not him. Is it Dis? I, oh, I still can't find. Yeah. It. Is it Disney Leaf? Is the actor in that one? Uh, it's uh, Cosgrove Watt and Philip T. Smothergill. Mm. Smothergill. Mm. Well, that, that could I had be the a... same instinct as Vinny. Yeah. And who's who's to say that they didn't just secretly film that thing that happened and then it was reproduced by actors that's true and yeah. released mm-hmm. or a smothergill could be a pseudonym for himself yeah well a smothergill would be the or pseudonym the for how oh yeah yeah um uh cosgrove watt would be himself oh yeah, Cosgrove Watt. That's another name that's mentioned in that first chapter. When Hal is remembering people, he remembers Cosgrove Watt. Is there any... Does he mention anything? No, it's that? just in a list of things. He, he, I think about the hyper, hypophalangeal grief therapist. I think of the moms alphabetizing cans of soup. There's also... I was thinking about what... Uh, some of the stuff that Vinny was saying last time about, the, you know, people with a disability and the... The cruelty and and there was the film uh, Cage Three that yes is called Free Show mm-hmm. when really yeah. you would think it should say Freak Show somehow because mm-hmm. that's pretty much what it's describing is the the sideshow of the carnival and and uh, what does it say spectators people watch being performers trans- transformed into eyeballs degradations to grotesque yeah spectators yeah, yeah, eyes people become basi- larger. Yeah. And then on the other side of the tent, it's, it says uh, on the other side of the exhibit, uh, if the fairgoers consent to undergo unspeakable degrada- degradations, oh, yeah. they can witness ordinary persons gradually turning into gigantic eyeballs. So, so it's can, like this mm-hmm. perpetual motion machine, right. kind of. Yeah. There are just so many. There are so yeah. many, so many mm-hmm. things that sound like. Uh, I mean. There's the man who began began to suspect he was made of glass. Yes, yeah. Uh, that yes. you talked about last time. And yeah, uh, uh, we also have our first instance of our podcast title. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, another section of the book that I just keep coming back to as I as I read. That seems like it contains the keys to so many different mysteries. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. Only we could figure out how to decode them. The one about the the man who began to suspect he was made of glass has the statement: "It's a 
A man undergoing intensive psychotherapy discovers that he is brittle, hollow, and transparent to others and becomes either transcendentally enlightened or schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. I thought, hmm, mm-hmm. hmm, hmm. So I would, I would really love to talk about Incandenza's seeming influences and, and where his films sit in relation to other filmmakers. Um, with the caveat that I have a lot written here and uh, <laughs> it may or may not be interesting. I don't know. Um, okay. Go and also, it. Vinny, if you have anything to, to chime in with, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective too. I didn't really have a lot of opportunity to do the research that I wanted to do for this. I thought it was coming a little later, like a couple weeks from now. And so I, I didn't, <laughs> didn't set aside the time to do that. Um, but here, here's my kind of inexpert opinion on Incandenza. Um, it's, his body of work is incredibly eclectic, and I can't think of another filmmaker who apparently encompasses such a broad range of cinematic modes. Like he does um, uh, structuralist experimental film, uh, documentary experimental narratives, and commercial narratives. Um, it just seems like a like a real shotgun blast of different uh, filmmaking processes. Yeah. Um, he reminds me a lot of Hollis Frampton, who's actually name dropped in one of the entries. Um, although he was perhaps more interested in Hollis Frampton was perhaps more interested in structuralist games than Incandenza appears to be. Um, Incandenza also often strays farther into narrative farce and melodrama, which bring to mind Guy Madden and George Kuchar. Um, Mm-hmm. Although I was trying to restrict myself to just looking at filmmakers who were uh, active prior to the mid-90s that David Foster Wallace would actually have known of. Uh, and Guy Madden didn't come to prominence until the late 90s, so it seems likely that DFW wouldn't have been familiar with his work. Um, one of the things I find surprising about this filmography is how disinterested Incandenza seems to be in post-production and optical printing. Um, given his background in optical engineering, I could easily imagine him as a much more uh, technical tinkerer. Uh, and there's some mention of experimental camera lenses that he makes, but he certainly isn't a laboratory filmmaker in the vein of like Stan Brackage or Pat O'Neill or someone like that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, so I have some notes on a few specific films in here. Uh, Cage, uh, and also Cages 2 and 3. Um there's a footnote here that references Sidney Peterson's 1947 film Cage, uh, mm-hmm. which I hadn't seen before, but I watched, and it's pretty fun. Um, it mm. feels like it owes a lot to uh, Dolly and Bunuel's Andalusian Dog and also to Maya Darren's Meshes of the Afternoon. Um, oh, okay. And although the footnote maintains that there isn't a resemblance to Incandenza's work, it does reinforce my sense that much of his work might resemble the work of Guy Madden or even Maya Darren. I have a question. So one thing that came up for me when I was reading this and when you're talking about all these, about all these connections to actual, actual filmmaking people, Mm -hmm. um, did David Foster Wallace was, was he involved in film? Work? He, not that I'm aware of. He he, did, he sure is going into he, extreme he detail. He wrote some on all the... film criticism. <laughs> he 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 wrote a kind of notorious um, uh, or like beloved, I guess, uh, piece for some magazine or another about visiting David Lynch on the set of Lost Highway. 
Um, that's, Mm. that's a particularly good read, but I don't think that he had any direct connection to the world of like avant-garde experimental cinema. Um, although, you know, he was an academic and he taught at a college and I would imagine that he had, he had some, uh, interaction with these people in these communities. He might've been a fan. I I, I don't know. And I guess experimenting with film in all, all these vastly different and kind of edgy out there ways uh is not that far off from what he's doing with his writing i think that's reasonable yeah yeah i see some similarities sort of a written version of hal's father his film kind of thrashing around here and there and everywhere (laughs) and kind of not all seemingly not connected and yet right you know, when you take the body of work and you look at the whole thing, there is connection, but mm-hmm. but you might not always see it when you're yeah. in the middle of it. Um, so uh, moving on to kinds of light, um, this is something not unlike a flicker film, like a structuralist flicker film, um, although I suspect that it wouldn't actually be as sensorially overwhelming to watch as David Foster Wallace says that it is. Uh this subject fixation also reminds me a little of Hollis Frampton's Lemon, which is a film of a lemon under changing lighting conditions. No. Um, dark Logics. Uh, in Dark Logics, there are specific references to silent filmmaker D.W. Griffith and to, yep. uh, and to Japanese avant-garde filmmaker Takahiro Imura. Uh, who I was unfamiliar with, um, but has a, has a very long and storied career. Um, okay, a uh, real quick question: Does Takayimura um, do they deserve more of a mention than D.W. Griffith? Um, I I I unpack this a little bit. I think that yeah, uh, and also, are we going to get into a discussion on D.W. Griffith? Only only a very brief one, unless you have very specific things you want to say, which you very well might. But let me say my piece first because okay. I think maybe I will say some of the things you're about to say. Okay. Um. So I suspect that this piece parodies Imura's 1962 film Love. Um, which he made in uh, collaboration with Yoko Ono, um, and which has a lot of close-ups of hands, and the camera never pulls back to show who those hands belong to. Um, presumably, the Griffith tribute comes more literally in reference to Griffith's 1916 film Intolerance, uh, made by D.W. Griffith after he did a real big oopsie and accidentally revitalized national interest in the Ku Klux Klan with his film Birth of a Nation. Um, mm-hmm. By the way, I had always heard that Griffith made Intolerance as an apology for Birth of a Nation. How Um, is that an apology? Well, as it turns out, he felt that he didn't have anything to apologize for, and in numerous interviews, Griffith made clear that Intolerance's title and overriding themes were meant as a response to those who he he felt had been intolerant of him in condemning the Birth of a Nation. Yep. Uh, this oh might, my word. This might be the mm-hmm. earliest recorded example of a public tantrum in which a celebrity claims to be the real victim for being called racist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, D.W. Griffith is is a is a troubling figure in film because it, it's you can't ignore the fact that he invented so much technique that that is still like I. I 
Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, thank you. Um, so for me, D.W. Griffith didn't invent these techniques. D.W. Griffith collected these techniques into one cohesive whole. Mm, but yeah. without D.W. Griffith, there would it still would have happened. There would have been so, someone else who would have done it. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And somebody who would probably be much a much better human being than D.W. Griffith. Yeah. So for me, I don't think D.W. Griffith should even be mentioned in film. I think we need to bury him. I think we need to completely forget him because he has a disgustingly poisonous legacy that is racist and just destructive. Here, here. It's, it's awful. Um, I, yeah, I, I decided for a while when I taught American film history classes, I would show a clip of birth of a nation to talk about race stereotypes in film. And, mm-hmm. and I, 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 thought about it more and I think it's just better like there's there's already a lot of ways to talk about race stereotypes in film and the ways that race and film have interacted um, without mentioning D.W. Griffith who's a monster and a bad person and uh, right yeah. um, anyway moving on since since uh, okay. since Incandenza seems happy to, to only make that one reference to D.W. Griffith I think we can leave him there um, okay uh, Union of Theoretical Grammarians in Cambridge. We talked about this briefly and kind of the connection to Stephen mm-hmm. Pinker, who is a real uh, cultural critic and uh, linguist. This entry also mentions digital facial distortion, uh, which is possibly a reference to another Takahiro Imura film, the 1994 film A-I-U-E-O-N-N, Six Features, which pairs cartoonishly distorted faces with each of the six Japanese vowels. Mm-hmm. Um, Infinite Jest 2. Uh, still not really much information about this film, but we can see the film gauge expanding to a ludicrous 78 millimeters. Um and I think it's interesting to note how many of Incandenza's films are 35 millimeter or larger film gauge. Uh, there's very little experimental film made in these formats primarily due to cost, um, but presumably Incandenza's engineering fortune finances these expensive projects. Now, Andrew, what would be the benefits of shooting on a larger film gauge? Um, significantly less grain and different focal characteristics. Um also, in theory, you could project them at a much larger size. That was often often films that were shot in the era of drive-in movies uh, would be shot on 35 millimeter film, but then printed to 70 millimeter for projection because you could get a brighter image from the projector that way. That's really cool. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, there's a fascinating story here. This also feeds into something that I have been puzzling over since the first time I read this book. I've talked to Brianna about it. We have no. Uh, conclusion. <laughs> I have some some leanings, but I, I want to see what you think about this, Vinny. Um, okay. 78 millimeter is not a format that currently exists, nor has it ever existed in our world. Um, <laughs> mo- most large format cinematography was shot on 65 millimeter film and printed to more structurally robust 70 millimeter film for projection. Um, and while some formats like IMAX increase the frame size by running the film horizontally through the camera, no commercially available perforated stock larger than 70 millimeter has ever existed. Um, so I suspect that David Foster Wallace just made an error um, and isn't predicting a new film gauge. Um, 
because the fr- the format is first mentioned for a film made before 1996, so contemporaneous to when the book was written, um, and no such format existed at the time. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or not. I would tend to agree. Um, I think it's either a mistake or it, it, if it's not necessarily a mistake, I don't think there's much thought behind it besides the, um, you know, the idea that I think during the 90s, that's when kind of IMAX started to become more right. well-known yeah. and bigger. And there, so, there was a lot of confusion about what IMAX format film was, like like what that film gauge was, because it runs through the camera sideways. Um, so that might be the source of that confusion. Okay, uh, moving on now to various small flames. Um, this is the first mention of appropriated footage or found footage in an incandenza film. Uh, that's also interesting that he he seems to use found footage very little in his work and and prefers to shoot his own material, um, which is again kind of surprising given the context of the the other filmmakers who would have been working at this time. Found footage was really big in the uh, the '90s and into the early 2000s, uh, and and incandenza seems not to be engaging with that trend. Um, hmm. There's also mention here of a lawsuit filed by Ed Ruscha for infringement on his 1964 photo book, Various Small Fires and Milk, um, which contains black and white photographs of various small fires and milk. <laughs> um, l- like much of Ruscha's work, it's a fatuous waste of time, and legally speaking, he wouldn't have had a leg to stand on since under American law, titles are not copyrightable. I didn't know that either. Mm-hmm. Uh, Homo Duplex is the, uh, the documentary or anti-documentary that interviews people who are named John Wayne, but aren't movie star John Wayne. This sounds like a delightful film. Uh, it sounds kind of like a less blank documentary or something. And I would absolutely watch this. Um, yeah, it's so, so this entry also mentions filmmakers, uh, Wojtich and Shulgin, um, I couldn't find any information about them, and I, I suspect that they're fictional characters, but I don't know for sure. Everybody stop. There's a cat on the sidewalk outside of our house. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right oh, there. my goodness. Oh, oh, it's sort of a brown tabby with a really dark stripe down its back. That's the one that we saw uh-huh. the other morning. Yeah, Sweet. yeah, it's walking up the steps. It's very good. We've seen a couple oh, good, good cats today. Um, I'm glad I was able to catch you at a yes, reasonable stopping. Um, yes, thank you, thank you for that. Uh, so the joke, it. the the joke is the film is the the entry in the filmography that specifically mentions Hollis Frampton, who did some in addition to his structuralist film work, did a couple more conceptual pieces that involved like lectures that may or may not also be films. Um. I also see some similarity to a Peter Kubelka project called, uh, I can't pronounce this, it's German, uh, Schweikater, I think, um, or Austrian. Funded by the Austrian beer company Schweikater, Kubelka filmed one short roll with a camera that had no viewfinder. After the film ran out, he continued shooting on set as ad agency people ran around composing shots. The film, as an ad, was rejected by its sponsor and never shown as a commercial. <laughs> um, That's so silly. 
Uh, Kubelka is a pretty interesting filmmaker. If you're if you're looking for a way into like experimental film, he's made a couple really great ones. He made one that's like Our Trip to Africa or something like that. That's about big game hunting in Africa and and like a just a, a merciless condemnation of it. Um, and also did some pretty interesting structuralist work. Um, the American Century as seen through a brick. Uh, is maybe my my favorite film from this filmography. It just sounds like a fascinating narrative, um, and it kind of reminds me of the overtly communist observational commentary work of Straubouillet, who were a, a French filmmaking duo. Um, there's also a mention here of Oslo photography, uh, which is a real thing pioneered in cinema by Mary Ellen Butte in a series of films set to music that prefigured the iTunes music visualizer by about 50 years. Oh, wow. Then we get to the film adaptation of Peter Weiss's The Persecution and Assassination of Marat as performed by the inmates of the asylum at Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. Um, it's a pretty fascinating piece uh, and I think that you can read this synopsis as being partially biographical. It mentions uh, a discussion of the history of method acting, which may refer to Incandenza's father. Um, and it may also be a depiction of Incandenza's alcoholism on screen. Um, also, the title of the piece and the tone of the uh, grotesque humorish chaos in the synopsis uh, recalls to me the work of George Landau, um, in particular his 1979 film On the Marriage Broker Joke as cited by Sigmund Freud in Wit and its Relation to the Unconscious or Can the Avant-Garde Artist Behold, in which two people in panda suits discuss film theory. Mm. Incidentally, Landau, who later went by the name Owen Land, made some fascinating films with excellent titles, the naming conventions of which remind me of Incandenza's titles. So here are a few of my favorite uh, George Landau titles. Faulty pronoun reference, comparison, and punctuation of the restrictive or non-restrictive element. A stringent prediction at the early hermaphroditic stage. Not a case of lateral displacement. Adjacent, yes, but simultaneous? And my personal favorite, new improved institutional quality. In the environment of liquids and nasals, a parasitic vowel sometimes develops. Um... And then the last film I have notes on is uh, Infinite Jest number six. Um, this mentions radical experiments in viewers' optical perspective and context. And that sounds to me like an extrapolation of Flickr film, uh, whose early proponents, filmmakers like Tony Conrad, Jonas Mikas, and Standish Lauder, believed could influence viewers' neural activity and maybe even, God willing, get them high. Um, I've yet to see any evidence that that was anything other than wishful thinking, but that is one of the original motivations for uh, the uh, genre of flicker film, which continues to this day. People still make flicker films, and uh, uh, some of them are very good, and some of them are not. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so that's my little book report on Incandenza's filmography. Uh, I'm sorry for how long it was. We can now continue. <laughs> I feel I feel overwhelmed by the by the filmography. I feel like we could have like we could talk for an hour on each page, which mm -hmm. I don't have that much time. 
<laughs> I'll need to stop before long yeah. uh, and go to Boulder. But mm-hmm. uh, it feels like so much of them have implications <laughs> and either either tell us about the the weird things that are happening uh, nationally and internationally during this whole, you know, the back the background for what's going on in the story or or James in Candenza's own uh, uh, spiraling into his final despair or whatever happened to him. You know, you mm-hmm. can see things coming apart as you read through the, or you see hints of things coming apart or coming yeah. together or yeah. <laughs> or something mm-hmm. as it goes along. And Yeah, definitely. Um, it it just seems like it seems like too much. It seemed like too much when it was when I was reading it, and when I look back through it and think, what is there to talk about? And I think there's too much to talk about. It's impossible to talk about it. There's mm-hmm. too much. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, going back to the discussion of you know, are the footnotes um, necessary? I feel like. You know, like Norma was just saying, there is so much detail in here, uh, in the filmography, about both the world that we find ourselves in, about like how time works and how naming conventions of the years work and all of that, about James Owen Condenza and about his personality and how he, who he was as a person and how he interacted with people around him um, that I think definitely makes this section worth reading. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I feel I, I, I have this horrible feeling that I should read the, the end notes again, but I can't <laughs> because it's, you don't have to, it's because okay. it's too painful. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, the process I mean, is painful, but it just feels like there's more information than I could even begin to make sense of. I do find myself referring back to a few of them, and this this is one endnote that I, I do think I, I flip back to sometimes to try and reacquaint myself with certain things. Yeah. And I I really appreciate it. I did think when I read it that I appreciated David Foster Wallace for so he sends us off on this endnote uh, craziness where we wallow about and, and it makes kind of makes my head hurt. And I think that I can't understand it and that I should be noting so much of this. And, and, and it's the kind of, it's the kind of uh, point where I might lay the book down and not pick it up again (laughs) because Mm -hmm. I feel discouraged about my inability to hold it in my brain, what, what he's been saying. But then he goes on, he goes on to, uh, the next, the next little chapter yes. is the ridiculously funny and and easy to read uh, description of uh, the football team, football Dressed teams having birds. to dress as their mascots, <laughs> and I'll never be able to watch a professional sporting event again without thinking about that, about the <laughs> the players coming out in tacky. Yeah, and also apparently, Costumes. 
they're jumping actually from the top of Mile leaping High. Leaping off Mile High Stadium. The yeah, they're actually Mile flying High somehow. I don't know whether their costumes are also like gliders or parachutes. They must I be, but they're tacky. They were they're, gliders. They're, like, they're like falling apart as they right, glide right. down. So, it did make me wonder whether, like, like, is this happening or is this some kind of hallucination of orange? <laughs> right, or, right. I, it didn't, but it didn't really matter to me because I, I just thought the whole thing was so hysterically funny and the because I'm a Bronco fan, you know, the thought of the <laughs> players out on the field in the two-person horse costumes, you know, the tacky, right. <laughs> falling down, rear end falls down, the the horse comes apart, and then they. They refer to other NFL teams and their mascots. And mm-hmm. Oren says, yeah, it was better when he was with uh, uh, New Orleans. New Orleans, because mm-hmm. they just had to wear halos and robes most of the time. And somebody <laughs> right. else said, yeah, it's tough if you're from Phil- if you're in Philadelphia, because they're the Eagles, you know. And, and how would you be an oiler? Or you could right. be a brown. Yeah. Or, <laughs> what it, does um, that mean, though? What is yeah. a brown? They, they don't have a mascot, do they? It's just the color brown. It's the browns. They're brown. It, They're browns. I don't think right. it relates. Oops. I think they just picked the color the, and stuck with it. The color of their uniforms, oh. or originally. Yeah. Um, so I appreciated that it was kind of like, like it was a reward for having <laughs> flogged myself to get through the end notes. That then I got to read this really truly hilariously funny uh section okay the cleveland browns okay tell us Uh, so their actual like image uh for their like icon for themselves is just a brown helmet (laughs) but their mascot their mascot is chomps who is a dog a brown dog but a dog Cute. I would like, in my mind, in this universe, in Year of the Depend Adult Undergarment, if you are a Cleveland Brown, you have to dress up as a giant brown helmet when you run on the field. I have the answer for you. I I believe I have the answer for you. Yeah. Why they're called the Cleveland Browns. Uh, They were founded in 1946, and as the result of a fan contest to choose their moniker, they were named after their first head coach, Paul Brown, mm. who was already oh, popular okay. this is, in Ohio. This is the further Browns. proof that the customer is always wrong. Yeah, no <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. So there's a couple other little vignettes in this chapter. There's like some somebody giving a presentation to the younger students at Enfield about drug use. Um, it's Pemulus. Pemulus yeah. is doing it. Is it Pemulus? It. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Pemulus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they're falling yeah. asleep like the dormouse yeah. in uh, Alice in Wonderland falling mm-hmm. into the teacup. Mm-hmm. Kept envisioning them the, as the dormice. And, uh, and yeah, and then there's another and another dream, another dream nightmare type thing. Right. But that one, I believe, is the one that is how. Yes, that's the one that mentions the moms. Mm-hmm. So I think oh, that's okay. how. There again, you get these, just these little tiny snippets of like teasing information about Hal and his mother. Mm-hmm. Is this the one where it says that she's in the stands? Yes. She, yeah, she's always, uh, she sits in her small circle of shadow, hair white, legs crossed, delicate fist upraised, and tight in total unconditional support. So. That's sweet. It is. It, it's. 
I feel like I feel like we have a lot more to know about Hal and yeah, like it, and his it does. Mother. It does seem sweet, but it feels like there's but also it feels some like kind there's of something there because he also has the dreams where his mother's head is attached to his own. So that that's doesn't Orin, sound though. good. That one's that's, Orin. That doesn't yeah, that sound Orin. good. Oh, that was Orin, right? Yeah. So, so mom's is not all sweetness and light. <laughs> yeah, we're not oh, for no. sure. For yeah. sure. Well, we did it. We talked about. We talked about it. <laughs> we, we talked did. about the book, right. guys. We, we did. Yeah, uh, we did. This was a hard one. The, yeah this this was this was a long one, and we had a lot to get through here. It was really fun talking about it with you, though. I, it's a great joy to have more than just one other person to discuss this book with when reading through it. And so yes. I'm really enjoying this. I agree, and it mm-hmm. really does. It does help me. I feel I feel much better reading the book this time because, I mean, you can't read it and not have questions and moments of just floundering and wondering what the heck you just read. So as I'm reading, I'm thinking, oh, but we'll get to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and it and it will either be clear, come clear or it won't become clear, but it's okay because we get to talk about it. So I appreciate you three. Yeah. young people Aww. yeah we appreciate you thanks for including an <laughs> yeah. oldie does anyone have any specific like things they want to mention to the world or plug or say before we leave let's see you can follow me and my paintings on instagram at cardboard vv definitely worth a follow um our podcast is now available on Spotify and Google Podcasts. It should be available on Apple iTunes podcasts uh, within the next day or two. So I would I would just like I would just like to say that in this uh, world of uh, pandemic and social isolation and wondering, you know, if things will ever be better, uh, that there there are hopeful things that happen. My sister's cat got out and got lost while she's uh, loading her moving truck today, and he's been found safely. Yay. And so, you Yay. know, my mind always goes to, oh, this is terrible, and what's going to happen, and what if he's lost forever? And, you know, things can work out. So, mm-hmm. And I can read Infinite Jest. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll be talking about pages 68 to 95. And as for you all, thank you all for listening. And in this trying time, as you go through your week, remember to unwittingly sound the death knell of post-post-structural film in terms of sheer annoyance. Goodbye. Update, everyone. Oh, I found okay. yarn. Oh. Oh, thank oh, God. Great. So it's going to be cream and mustard. Excellent. Ooh. Okay. Which would be pretty. not great to eat, but <laughs> will look cream and mm-hmm. mustard. just <laughs> lovely.
Oh, oh update. I found yarn. Nice. <laughs> so it's going to be cream and mustard. Excellent. Which would be not great to eat, but will look just <laughs> lovely.